Greetings, fellow citizens, and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Hunter Cates. On today's show, we're reviewing the newest comedy from the Coen brothers, Hail Caesar. Then in special features, we will discuss the career of the brothers in contemplating the Coens. And finally, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... Well, ladies and gentlemen, in today's segment called Bat Chat slash Soup Scoop, we are going to discuss the final trailer, or at least what promises to be the final trailer, of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. Now, Chris, I feel like this trailer almost needed to come before the last one. The last one basically implies that, as we all suspect, they team up to fight a greater threat. This one goes back and says, well, but remember, they're still fighting. I mean, it's still Batman v Superman. I I take it as a different sort of thing. I take it as like... But hey, guys, remember, Batman is really in this movie. Like, it, it, it seems more focused on the, um, you know, like sometimes you get trailers where it's like, okay, we're going to a- appeal to a certain demographic. This is sort of that, but it's we're going to remind you that Batman is in this movie. And even though it's a sequel to a Superman movie, you're going to get Batman. Yeah, absolutely. And half I would halfway think that they need to just rename this movie Batman in all caps. Dot, 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 the, v the, sub, the subtitle is V Superman. V Superman, which is kind of funny to me. It, it The very first trailers, if you'll recall, from the teaser to the first trailer, were very Superman-focused. Yeah. And then it kind of subtly introduced Batman. And you would halfway think that this was Warner's intention all along, but I don't really think it was that planned out. Well, there were – I don't know. I And, you know, I can't recall exactly when this was in production, but there, there was news that broke, I don't know, probably six months or more ago. Um, that the studio basically said like, oh, well, we kind of like the movie, but we also want more Batman. Like that was the, the, that's, the studio that's the notes, one, uh, more Batman. The studio notes were more Batman. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that, like speculation at the time was that part of that was, well, we're, you know, we're going to make another Batman movie. We're also going to incorporate Batman into uh, Suicide Squad, which we're yet to see how much that's going to be a part of that movie. Uh, so they're, you know, Batman is the only commodity, superhero commodity that they have that has really, really worked in the past. Well, so you can't, you know, hold it against them. Yeah, I think when we've discussed this before is they're being kind of short-sighted. It's not like Marvel, for instance, has to shove Iron Man and everything. Now, maybe they're putting Iron Man in too much for some people's tastes, but it's not like he has to be everything. Now they basically he, decided he says that Bat- as a movie that is a Captain America movie in which he exactly, fights exa- in a, well, <laughs> Iron Man. But it's not Captain America v. Iron Man, you know? Right. Whereas but this it's, is a, it's a sequel to Man of Steel, presumably, but Batman still gets top billing. It's well, but it's a sequel. I see. I I don't even know why I'm defending this movie right now. But it's it's you know I see it as a sequel in that it is a movie that comes after the events of Man of Steel. But they're also you know they're introducing Batman. They're trying to set up the Justice League, thus Dawn of Justice. And so they're not seeing it as a Batman movie. And in the same way that Marvel sees, you know, they have their Avengers and then they break off and do each one does their Mm -hmm. own little thing. They're kind of making this stew of superhero movies that maybe are going to be indistinguishable from like who, who's really the main focus of each. I don't know. Well, David S. Goyer, who is the, was the screenwriter of Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises and Batman Begins. And anyway, he's been very involved in these pictures. He said that we're not really focusing on what Marvel's doing to, mm-hmm. in regards to what we're doing. I think that kind of gives Warner Brothers too much credit. I really feel like this is just being made up as it goes along, and that's <laughs> being reflected in the marketing. Because once again, the name of the movie is Batman v Superman, but that that's the story being told in the final trailer. But the story told in the last trailer was Batman and Superman mm-hmm. versus Doomsday. Batman, mm-hmm. Superman, and Wonder Woman and versus Wonder Doomsday. Woman. Yeah. 
uh i don't know we'll we'll see soon enough i'm like i'll say i'm less excited about it than i was from the the last trailer the last trailer like gave me a little bit of hope i've been pretty pessimistic about this movie from the beginning um i mean with Zack snyder being attached at all like that's gonna you know that throws it way down yeah my attitude is is not excited or unexcited it's just meh I will say this, though. I don't think I've ever recorded this. I've, I've recorded it on Facebook, but I want to record it here. Why pick Jesse Eisenberg as Lex Luthor when The Rock is right there? He <laughs> looks like Lex Luthor. Yeah. He is Lex Luthor. Oh, I just, but, but he's Black Adam, remember? Yeah, well, and then so, yeah, there you go. But instead, we're going to go Jesse Eisenberg because, hey, guess what? He played Marcus Zuckerberg. Get it? Ha, ha, ha. I yeah, don't know. I don't it's, know. Uh, he's, he's probably the, the biggest thing for me that I'm like— he could be good, but it looks like he's hamming it up way too much. Yeah, well, in, in any event, I guess if if seeing Batman and Superman beat the hell out of each other is your thing, I'm, I'm sure we'll get what we desire, if that's what you want. Not what I want. Not what I want at all. Yeah, me neither. But if that is what you want, Midnight Warriors, please let us know. But in the meantime, stick around as Chris and I review the Coen Brothers' latest Hail Caesar. Uh, Mr. Mannix. What's up? The director can't find Baird Whitlock. Somebody slipped it under my door. We have your movie star. Gather $100,000 and await instructions. Who are we? The future. Hello, Bert. Hello, Mr. Mannix. Lawrence, Obi, thank you all for coming. The studio needs your help. Bad Whitlock has been kidnapped. This is bad. Bad for movie stars everywhere. She sings the perfect harmony. Let's spend 24 hours. But we're looking for him. We don't want it in the gossip columns. This is going to cost the studio a lot of money. And that's where you come in. I need some cash. You must have very strong forearms. Is it hard squeezing it like that? It's part of the job, miss. I'd like to know what the hell is going on here. The trailer for Hail Caesar would lead you to believe that it's about the kidnapping and ransom of Hollywood star Baird Whitlock, played by George Clooney. But that would be like saying The Big Lebowski is about the kidnapping and ransom of heiress Bunny Lebowski, or that Fargo is about the kidnapping and ransom of housewife Jean Lundegaard. If Hail Caesar is about anything, it's simply paying homage to Hollywood's golden age, as an ensemble of today's Hollywood stars show up to portray an ensemble of yesteryear's Hollywood stars. Hunter, this seems like just the type of picture made for a guy like you, who has a poster of Robert Osborne hung above his bed. It's true. I love you, Mr. Osborne. But here in the heartland, we typically see two types of films come through the theaters at the beginning of the year. Your prestige pictures, think Carol, Anomalisa, and even The Revenant, these films receive limited release in December to qualify for Oscar consideration, then slowly trickle out to the art house theaters around January or February. And then you've got, well, your leftovers. Think Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, Dirty Grandpa, and Fifty Shades of Black. These films open at the beginning of the year simply to fill time between the Oscar season and, well, Batman v Superman. These are often extremely broad comedies, cheap sci-fi flicks, and films that studios don't trust to turn a profit when released against any serious competition. So, I'm curious. Did the austere dramas, sword and sandal epics, westerns, musicals, and western musicals of Hail Caesar fill your geriatric heart with nostalgia and delight? Or, do you suspect that Universal Studios predicted that this film starring Channing Tatum, George Clooney, Jonah Hill, Josh Brolin, Ray Fiennes, Scarlett Johansson, Tilda Swinton, and a whole slew of others was an outright stinker that must be banished to the barren wasteland of the February box office. And furthermore, is it hard dancing with all them bananas on your head? You know, honestly, Chris, I've been dancing with bananas on my head for so long, it's practically second nature. <laughs> uh, this did, did you start with plantains? Yeah, I started, I started with actually gherkins, and then okay. eventually moved on to <laughs> dancing with bananas on my head. I'm wearing one right now, folks, you can't see. 
this film, I'm reminded of the phrase, a trial of style over substance. However, the problem of applying that to Hail Caesar is I'm not sure that the wonderfulness of the style was enough to overcome the lack of substance. And lack of substance maybe isn't even the right word. The Just the, the plain oddness of mm-hmm. the substance. The um, I'm going to try and give the Coen brothers maybe more credit than they deserve. But watching this film immediately afterwards, I was reminded of a story involving John Lennon. John Lennon had heard that universities were analyzing his lyrics, and he was so upset by that, it just irritated the hell out of him, that he decided to write, I am the walrus, and say, let's see them figure this out. That's how I felt watching Hail Caesar, is they is it's almost like the Coen brothers were irritated by academics analyzing their <laughs> movies, so they thought, let's make this movie and see if they can figure this out. Maybe I'm giving him more credit. You know, I I don't like I'm I don't totally disagree with your your viewpoint on this. I'll I'll say like initially walking out of this movie, I was pretty disappointed. I was uh, you know just that cast alone, like giving them that cast felt like a brilliant sort of move. Um, but I you know I I was a little disappointed. I wasn't sure what all you know what the point was. Well, do you think they were screwing with us? I I and that's a I, I think we'll get to that. Yeah, I I think that's part of it. Um, they, because they are, you know, they're kind of jolly little pranksters in a lot of ways. And they definitely didn't give us the movie that, that was promoted, whether that's their choice or universals, I'm not sure. Um, but there, there's, you know, they're basically taking this ensemble cast and saying, we're not going to make a star out of nearly anyone. Um, we're just going to kind of give you tableau after tableau, you know, these scenes of, uh, stars in their own element of, of, you know, different, different pieces. And I was having brunch last week with a friend of ours, Jacob Graves, who's been on the show before. And he, he had a quote about it that I, I thought was fitting. Like I, I don't a hundred percent agree, but I, I'm just going to read it here. And he said, it's like a buffet just because you can get pizza and Thai food at the same place. That doesn't mean that it's good. And I don't know. I, I found myself thinking about this movie a lot since seeing it, you know, it's almost to, to quote, um, raising Arizona. It was almost a way homer for me mm-hmm. because I didn't get it until the way home or the night after the way home. Um, well, before you continue, I would just like to take a pause for the cause here for a moment and say that Jacob is a, emphatically wrong that you that you should not have pizza and Thai food at the same time that is empirically incorrect so i just want to get that out before so, you so his analogy we're just going to throw it, it may be appropriate to this strike but, it from the record yeah, yeah for, it may be appropriate to this film like that may be a good way to describe this film but using pizza and Thai food that was incorrect because those <laughs> those should go on top of each other in fact you might be onto something um but you know it's uh it's not my favorite coen brothers film i i have a feeling that i liked it more than you did though um, yeah, that's probably safe to say, because here's the thing is it, it, I would go so far as to say it's just not a good movie, but if they made this just to screw with pretentious film critics, then I can admire them for that. <laughs> if they made a bad movie, but that is still just filled with so many unfinished and undeveloped ideas mm-hmm. purposefully to troll critics, then bravo to them. Here's, here's the thing that I find really frustrating is I, I think it actually suffers from too too many people in the cast, too many characters. Because this is a movie like if this was a pilot for like an HBO series or something, it would be great. Because we, you know, we're basically just we're introduced to, you know, from from Channing Tatum as his singing dancing sailor to Scarlett Johansson, who's this like 
sort of uh, squeaky clean starlet who we find out actually has a somewhat yeah, and she's in kind of Busby Berkeley musical style. Yeah, yeah. she and she she has a you know somewhat sordid uh, story that that they're you know the studio is trying to hide. Um, you know, all of these things they're really interesting. They're really interesting to explore, but for the most part, we only get one or two scenes with each of these characters. And so we don't get to develop that as far as. Yeah. It's really a bunch of cameo uh, parts. And even though at only about a hundred minutes long, I was still bored to tears by the end. Really? Yeah. I I was ready to get out of there. Mind you, I was saying it at 10 o'clock. So maybe that contributed Hmm. it, but I will say that this, it, to your point about the HBO series is it seemed too long to be a TV show, but too short to be a movie. You know what I mean? And so it kind of existed in a strange purgatory. I I don't I don't know if I agree with that. Like I I would say it too short to be I I think I think it's too too dense to be a movie, but dense is even the wrong word because, you know, I comparing it to other Coen Brothers movies. Like let let's compare it to Inside Lewin Davis their last. Um that's a movie that I think is dense with metaphor and meaning and that sort of thing. And that, and and that's what I think this doesn't have, you know, you have, you have some stuff where it's sort of trying to draw comparisons between um, communism and the studio system and all of these things. And um, there's a little bit of religion student. Yeah. With, with religion student in in a somewhat interesting way. But I mean, you compare that to something like a serious man and it's all, it, it feels like everything is turned down a bit in the intensity and in the, the, the focus on, the elements. I mean, that's, that's the thing that I really like. It, it feels a little half cocked. It's not, and I wouldn't put it, I would definitely put it, you know, still above like lady killers and intolerable cruelty. Like it's not bottom of the barrel Coens, um, which I mean, honestly, like you give me any Coen brothers movie. I'm still like, I enjoy them all, but to, to some varying degrees. And this is, this is probably in the middle for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. I, I haven't, having not seen, I think these are the only two I haven't seen. Having not seen Lewin Davis or a serious man, this picture actually reminded me more of the man who wasn't there, the Billy Bob Thornton black mm-hmm, and white mm-hmm. noir. And the reason being is watching that movie that felt like, again, they were trolling critics. That's kind of my running theme here is I, th- I really do feel like they were just trying to mess with critics. So, oh, and well, sorry, and, and, well and as an example, as we, you mentioned, uh, religion and politics, communism, capitalism, mm-hmm. Judaism, Christianity. The reason I think those didn't work is maybe because they didn't even want them to work. They were just trying to establish uh, contradictions from each. And so Mm -hmm. to give an example of how I think they are trolling critics, I have two very different reviews, and I think either one of them could have been right. Okay. So if you'll bear with me for a moment. Jake Coyle with the Associated Press said, It's something like a summation of Joel and Ethan Cohen's films. Meaning is a missing frame. Human folly is the star. And only the dialogue is divine. Now, that's a fairly accurate view. But Mr. John Anderson of the Wall Street Journal says, Hail Caesar verifies a suspicion long held here that the Coen brothers, Joel and Ethan, really hate the movies. I, I could. And I don't I, know if I agree with that. You don't think? Because if anything, it kind of feels like because you they they show these stars. You mentioned Scarlett Johansson, but then they pull back the curtain and say these actually aren't very pleasant people. It's almost like maps to the stars esque in that regard. Oh, man, I no okay. I I really disagree with you on on this because I think. Um, if anything, they're, they're, they, I mean, think of what they could have done with this era, the, the, the golden age of Hollywood, like they could have gotten really dark and gritty 
with some of this stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. the um, even the I think in in the credits it was the French postcard house. Basically, the first time we we meet Eddie Mannix in the very beginning, and he goes in and pulls. Um, is it Scarlett Johansson or is it another? I, no, it's somebody else. Yeah, um, some pulls, we never see. Yeah, pulls pulls a star out. Um, basically, they're they're taking these like boudoir photos um, of her and. Uh, there's, you know, that's, I honestly, I thought it was going to be a little CD or a little like LA confidential or something right. like that. Um, it, but to me, it felt like more of a loving send up to, uh, to Hollywood, to old Hollywood. And in a, in a Coen brothers sort of way, I mean, in a, if they're not nihilist, if they're not totally perverse, there's a little bit of that in them. And, and you get a little bit of that here, but it's not, I mean, look at, look at the Eddie Mannix story arc, which is, he's the only character who has much of an arc at all. Um, his ultimate decision at the end is I love movies. I love filmmaking. Right. Um, so I, I, I mean, what is it, what is it that you see in it that feels like they, they hate, uh, the movies and, and the movie. Industry. Not so much they hate the movies, but the Coen brothers, and this is a criticism off made by the late Roger Ebert, is the Coen brothers do have a tendency to look down on their characters. And I felt a little bit of that. I don't really think, except for, you know, maybe Fargo, but I don't really think they've really engaged in seediness like you would see in LA Confidential. And frankly, I would have preferred in this picture. It's more just they are a an ambivalent God who is looking down on these people and not being impressed. And it felt like that. And so as a given the subject is Hollywood, I can see where someone could take away that these guys hate the movies. I'm not sure I agree with that, but the point is, is either one of these reviews, just the contradictions mm-hmm. of the film. I can see how either is true. I do like, I do like the fact that you are calling them the God here because there is in most Coen brothers movies, there is this weird out of the frame God figure, be it a religious God or otherwise and it kind of it does feel like they are the you know just slightly slightly out of frame slightly not there you know uh, they're they're looking down on all of it so i the do, men who were not there you might say <laughs> i i do agree with that i just uh i i see it very differently than you do as far as i mean i i don't think um if you're if you're going because i think this does fit into their oeuvre as a whole as mm-hmm. um what they're really uh, what they're really looking to to say, if anything, um, and and I think that's a discussion to have too. Is like, are they are they meaning to say anything, or are they just joking around? Are they uh, are they having fun with all of us? Um, and maybe, but if if that's the case, like here, it's uh, I don't know. It's not as it, it it's not hateful. It's not like to say that he hates his characters. Like these characters could have been far worse. Um, if if that was the the case. I mean, I think maybe Scarlett Johansson and Jonah Hill are the only ones that are really like have a little seediness, even like Channing, Ant- Channing Tatum, which I don't know if we want to get into sort of where his story goes. But that that ending is is kind of brilliant. Like uh, the, the way that his character, the send off of his character is I love the idea of the just the hypothesis of like. What if suspicions about communism were more true than you could have ever possibly known? Actually, <laughs> like that's that, and that's that's a fair uh, fair idea. Is that maybe that's what they were going for? I just still, like I said, watching it, I, I felt like I was, or rather, critics were being trolled. But maybe there was a little bit more of a of a thread there. It, and and it's not like I'm not defending it totally because I do think it's weaker than a lot of their other pictures. Like and and so for a movie that ostensibly doesn't really have an ending like when that when <laughs> when the camera tilts up and then we go to credits i was a little upset 
Um, it's, it's a, and, and they do that a lot. They, they have non-ending endings, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the time. I mean, something like a serious man is, is that way inside Lewin Davis is sort of that way. And, you know, it goes farther back than that, but this was like, I was not like, I was not, there, there was no conclusion to anything. And it, and it also didn't feel like I got the content, the density that you get of the, the movies that are a little more open-ended either. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I feel like, so did you, did you hate this movie or was it just sort of a, I, well, hate's a strong word. I have no desire to see it again. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I definitely want to see it again. I want to see, I mean, I, I, I think this is a movie that's, it's not going to stay even keel for me. It's either going to rise or sink mm-hmm. upon repeat viewings. And I'm interested in what that will be. One part that I did enjoy, and I said this at the start, was the the cinematography and then the set design, the costume design, hey, hey, recreating Hunter. Hollywood was Roger Deakins. Yes, I know. Okay. And and I I really doubt this will be the one to net him that that not, Oscar. Not the one. But I mean, it was it was marvelous work. It looked like uh, it looked like what it was was old mm. Hollywood. I I really enjoyed being a fan of that era. Mm-hmm. Them recreating the the Ben Hur kind of look or the old Western kind of look, and the and so that was very enjoyable. But I didn't feel like the story surrounding it did much for me. You you mentioned the old Western. We we would be remiss if we didn't talk about perhaps the breakout star of this movie. And one of the one of the ensemble cast members that actually gets a substantial bit of screen time in comparison to the others. And that's Alden Ehrenreich, um, who plays this uh, singing cowboy who is suddenly told that he's now going to be uh, sort of a tall, dark and handsome leading. Yeah. Man. Thrust into a costume picture in which he can't pronounce the words or translate the yeah. director's direction and, into, and, into plain English. And, and the, the source of my, my first question to you, uh, is it hard dance with all them bananas? On yeah. Your he was, he was a uh, terrific. I really enjoyed him. I don't think I've seen him in anything else. I, I don't think I have either. Um, he, but he, he fit right in with, you know, Coen brothers sort of, uh, style of dialogue. Like he, he did it very well. Probably my favorite scene is between him and, uh, Ray Fiennes. Would that it were so simple. Would that it were so simple. Would that it were so simple. My dear boy, why do you say that? Why do you say it were? Well, you should say it like I said. Yes. Would that it were so simple. 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 Watch my mouth. Would that it were so simple. Would that it were so simple. Keep your head still. Would that it were so simple. Would that it were so simple. Would that it were so simple. I'm trying to say that, Mr. Lawrence. Lawrence, hmm? I thought a minute ago it was L- Lorraine. No, we can use Christian names, my good dear boy. Lawrence is fine, just as I call you Herbie. Okay. So, would that it were so simple? Would that it were so simple? Would that it were so simple? Trippingly. Would that it were so simple? Trippingly. No, don't say trippingly. Say the line trippingly. One of the things, because I, I watch in, in preparation for a special features topic, I went back and revisited several Coen Brothers movies. And one thing that I noticed watching them all, you know, so close together is the Coen brothers really love repetition, like specifically in dialogue, but also in, you know, actions and that sort of thing as well. Um, and this is like that on steroids, the, the back and forth trying to get Holby to deliver that line properly. And just the frustration with a uh, fines director trying to get him to do it. And, and it honestly, like it made me, that felt like a little almost inside baseball sort of thing of, I bet they've had this 
this situation with then because they're they're, they're so specific with their dialogue. I bet they've had this with actors trying to get them to deliver it just right. Yeah, that was a great moment. It's it was the underlying message is just these are two people who speak English but yet speak very very different languages yeah. and come from very very different places. One so yeah, I I agree with you absolutely. I thought he was terrific. However, one part that I really didn't like one actor that I didn't really like in this and it may have made the difference for me like I may have enjoyed this movie more as if he worked was I didn't like Josh Brolin is is it Eddie Mannix Eddie, Eddie, Eddie Mannix right. yeah um he was perfect for the role if this role would have been a supporting character but given mm. that this role was a leading character I, he just didn't I he didn't have the uh charisma to carry this picture on his back and so whenever it started to slow down I just wasn't invested in his journey I, you know, I, I didn't feel that per se. Like I liked him in, in the role. I, I will say the way that he's initially introduced is very different than what he ends up being. Like initially you think he's sort of this Hollywood fixer, this guy who, or an enforcer who, you know, makes sure that stars stay out of trouble and all that. He ends up being a studio head, which seems kind of weird. Well, I think like, he's still the fixer. He was just the titular studio head or not titular. He was the acting studio head because the other guy's off in New York. The right. Actual he's, owner. He, he's maybe the, the other, um, you know, off off the screen uh, God in this, mm-hmm. in yeah. this situation. But um, the, the thing that doesn't work, I, I think the biggest fault of it is. Um, he's the only one who really interacts with any of the other cast members for the most part. Like it's, he goes to, he goes to one set, he goes to another set, he goes to another set. And that's the only time, like, you know, they never interact with each other. Um, you have a little bit of you, Scarlett Johansson and the one Jonah Hill scene, which Jonah Hill's character, that's one that I would love to explore more. In a well, TV and then series. also what's her face? Francis McDormand. She's in it for all of three minutes. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And, and she, she's a great, like sort of, I think uh collage of a bunch of these old, uh, these old veteran Hollywood editors. Yeah. Honestly, our, our big tip off on her in this movie should have been that whenever they were doing the trailer, the only time you see Francis McDormand is when they say Francis McDormand's uh-huh. in it. So mm-hmm. that should have been our tip off that this is basically a cameo. Yeah. But, and, and it, that doesn't bother me, but I do think it's, it's packed a little too much and they don't, they don't ever get to commingle. And that would have been much more interesting. Honestly, I, I, I still maintain that had it not been Josh Brolin. Let me let me throw out a few names here. Okay. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. Hmm. Like a Robert Downey Jr. and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, that kind of thing. I, I not not in a Coen Brothers movie. All honestly, right. like I, I think he would be he would be like and not even like a Nick Cage where it's like, well, you get a great performance. But it, I, I think it would have he would have detracted a little bit from I don't it know. Would have been too much. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, Russell Crowe. Mm. <laughs> Are you well, just LA going LA Confidential? Yeah, exactly. LA Confidential. Uh, I no. Yeah, Danny DeVito. No, I don't. I don't think so. All right. Um. Okay. Done Coen Brothers movies before. Billy Bob Thornton. Billy Bob Thornton could be interesting. I yeah, just, particularly it's kind of like a, a southern guy fish out of water. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or I mean, he could be he could be a Howard Hughes sort of. Yeah, sort of he dude. could be anything as Billy Bob. Uh, yeah. I read an interview with the Coen Brothers where they said Billy Bob is a director, and one of his quotes was that if you have to direct your actors a lot, that you probably miscast. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if they had to direct Josh Brolin, but I still maintain I think he was miscast. Final one, and and hopefully you agree with this. It's a little obvious, but Michael Keaton. <laughs> Michael Keaton My, as, Michael, as Michael Eddie Keaton, Michael Keaton would have been pretty darn good. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll I think that. if you put and Michael Keaton, I would have liked this movie for, that much for more. the for the you know light bit of you know the Catholic guilt thing that they they play up just a little. Like Michael Keaton would have been, I think, the best of those options to actually pull that off. And uh, because it's a you don't you know 
now that now that we're actually you know analyzing Michael Keaton would have been a better would have been a better option like you just don't get that that sort of inner turmoil that they were going for as much as you could you potentially could have with someone else yeah and so I think my key takeaway from this is you need a really if you're going to make a movie based on an elite performance you need a really strong lead performance and maybe I would be more receptive to seeing this again liking it a you know, liking mm-hmm. it more, thinking about it more. But since I was never connected to that lead performance, but, I just don't really I think, desire to go back. I think part of the problem is that he is the lead. He, I mean, I don't think he should have necessarily been. been no, the absolutely. The, Josh Brolin's a great actor. Josh Brolin is Eddie Mannix is a supporting role. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't, Ed, he shouldn't have Eddie, been the lead. But I, I think Eddie Mannix in general, that character in general, I would prefer as a supporting role. And, and not necessarily, I mean, Clooney, I think Clooney had the, adequate amount of screen time but some of those others were more i mean the the jonah hill scarlett johansson uh their little relationship i would i would watch an entire movie with that the um the holby character his sort of transformation from cowboy into austere drama actor i would have i would have watched an entire movie of that so it's it's more it's more that thing for me well maybe this needs to just be turned into an hbo series maybe it'll find second life on hbo i would totally watch it well, Chris, this film is about the classic old Hollywood, so will you be picking a beer that is equally austere? Or conversely, will you be picking a beer that pairs well with pizza and Thai food? <laughs> uh, actually, I, I would absolutely drink this beer with pizza and Thai food. And it is a beer that actually predates old Hollywood. So it's uh, it would have been around at the time. And the beer that I'm picking today is Anchor Steam by Anchor Brewing in San Francisco, California. Um, it's been around since 1896. So it's a beer that, you know, you could maybe try to compare to the old American classics like, uh, Pabst Blue Ribbon or, uh, Budweiser or something like that. But it's a little better than that. It's not, you know, it's not the best beer, but it's a, it's a good solid pick. Um, it's a, the style is a California common, which I honestly can't tell you too much about it. To me, it tastes a bit like a, I guess a bit like a Pilsner. Um, it's, you know, mostly malty with a little bit of hops, but not, not too terribly strong on the hops. Um, and it's a, you know, it's, it's a classic beer. Um, so I think it would go, go well with this movie. That's, you know, a send up to classic Hollywood. Well, there you have it. Well, despite this film being in glorious technicolor, my views are pretty black and white, whereas Chris's are in shades of gray. So that means you, dear listener, have to decide. Hail Caesar is currently playing at an old timey movie palace near you. If you've seen it, Tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing because, you know, it hasn't been invented yet, why not give us a ring on that bright red telephone and your favorite, I don't know, what do you say, Hunter, screwball voice? Yes, screwball voice or uh, mid- mid-Atlantic. You don't hear enough mid-Atlantic. <laughs> yeah, okay. Screwball or mid-Atlantic. Give us a ring at 484-424-6362. That's 484 484- for cinema. We'll also accept overnight telegraphs. <laughs> I don't know where they'll go, but we'll accept that as well. We'll stick around, folks, because we'll be back after the break to discuss the Cohen brothers in Contemplating the Cohens. These times, so it seems, you're only what you can dream. So I hold my eyes shut. Crooked ways, crooked days, our heads are caught. Smokers still are choking 
Chris, bear with me for a moment. I'm fixing to get all philosophical-like. Forget it, Hunter. You're out of your element. The Coen brothers are perhaps the most literary of American filmmakers. Or perhaps it's better to say that they're the most American of literary filmmakers. Much like their fellow Minnesotan, Bob Dylan, the Coens are playfully caustic poets of the American experience, unearthing fresh, even frightening new perspectives on well-worn storytelling traditions. Their celebrated oeuvre is a collection of dissimilar genres, whose only unifying thread is that each is deeply American. Detective noir, crime saga, western, screwball comedy. Elements of each flow through most of their films, yet at the core of the Coens is a singular vision, shared by a two-headed director. While the Coens may not be America's greatest filmmaker, I would argue that they are America's most impervious. Not even Spielberg or Scorsese command their level of deference. I'm not 100% sure I agree with your police work there, Hunter. But consider this, Chris. If I were to say, Spielberg sucks, you'd disagree, vehemently so, say I was just being petulant and provocative, and move on. But if I said the Coen brothers suck, well, what would you say? The love of decency does not abide in you, Hunter. Exactly. My credibility as a critic would crash faster than Anton Chigurh and No Country for Old Men. So what accounts for this uncommon loyalty? Why is loving the Coens a prerequisite for being a qualified film lover? And where do they reside? Perhaps some paradoxical purgatory of being simultaneously the most overrated and underrated of American filmmakers. Chris, let's say 57 years from now, where will Joel and Ethan Coen reside in the motion picture pantheon? Uh, well, I think you're I think you're spot on with sort of giving them that American stamp. There's something about uh, it, and it's not a you know it's not a patriotic thing. It's not a you know it's it's more a uh, I don't know like like Bob Dylan and folk music uh, that which one came before the other. But there's there's something that feels like their films couldn't have been made by anyone from any other region. Exactly. Like it, it, it's a really I, I I have trouble defining it, but it is it is American. Well, and here and to that point, much like Bob Dylan, there's a difference between I would say American and Americana. They're not uh -huh. necessarily trying to revive, even though they work in past genres. They're not trying to necessarily revive past genres. No, I don't think ever. They're trying to expand the conversation mm -hmm. and and like I said, unearth things about. America and American genres that we, we never necessarily knew. Yeah, in yeah. many ways, they're using these classic genres as a vehicle to expose new things and new ideas. Yeah. And so that's why whenever I say I think they are fundamentally American in that regard. Let, let me ask you this. Two questions, two parts, I guess. Uh, one, what's your favorite Coen Brothers movie? And two, what do you think in, in that classification of them as American directors? What do you think uh, is the one movie that you would hold up? Like if you if you could only show someone one film. Uh, their best film is not necessarily my favorite. Okay. I, I, I love it very much. I categorically love it, but it's not necessarily my favorite. Their best is Fargo. Okay. My favorite is Fargo tied with True Grit and maybe Raising Arizona for nostalgia purposes. Okay. Raising Arizona and The Big Lebowski. I, I, I just start going through all their films. Raising <laughs> Arizona, Big Lebowski, True Grit, Fargo. The one that I would put in a time capsule is Fargo. Absolutely. Okay. That's or, you know, it's one of those things I know there'll be a lot of people rolling their eyes. But if you divorce it from their other work and just look at it, if this was the only movie they made, I think True Grit is certainly time capsule worthy. It's not as good as yeah. Fargo. It's not as quintessentially Cohen but uh -huh. as far as just a movie. It's, it's good. It's really it's really good filmmaking. I, I mean, yeah, if you can divorce it, maybe and maybe 
do you mind if we talk a little bit about like their because they have they have a few different sort of styles that they're working and they have they have their heady stuff they have their you know farcical comedy stuff and then they have is there anything besides True Grit and No Country for Old Men that they've worked on that's an adaptation? I, well, you could say Oh Brother Where Out Thou being an adaptation of The Odyssey, yeah, but yeah. that might be beginning and, a little and navel gazing. Yeah, I mean that's you're at that point you're kind of getting into some some gray area, but you know they're I. I do think they adapt very well. Like they, uh, with, with true grit, which I have, I have not read the, the source material, but, um, everyone says it's closer to the source material than the you know, original John Wayne film. Uh, no country for old men is definitely like, you can feel Cormac McCarthy's prose on the screen. Um, it, it, they, they pair nicely. And I don't know if that's a, like they pair nicely with selected works or if they're just, you know, they have the ability to actually put something up on, um, up on the, you know, read it and then, and then figure out what the visual context is to it. Well, in addition to being Westerns, one being a modern Western, one being an old Western, no country for old men and true grit are both very much differentiated by the quality of their dialogue. Mm -hmm. And not just the dialogue is in a conversation between two characters, but just in the way the people speak in the way, in the way they speak being a reflection of the way they think it's Mm -hmm. very, uh, biblical. Yeah, no, totally. And and there's, you know, throughout their work, there's a lot of kind of parables of um, worst intentions, you know, going wrong in something like Fargo or No Country or uh, it, True Grit gets it's it's not quite that. It's a little more of a straight story, I guess. But um, it's uh, it, it, you're right. It, it, it has that that quality to it that the the. Uh, parable or the um well a parable or just a, a classic good and evil tale of yeah. of you know so you know this is the running theme in, in these episodes lately it's just retribution i just think mm-hmm. <laughs> true grit is much better at telling a retribution as opposed to a revenge story yeah now yeah. i've I, said this a second ago with the biblical what's funny about the Coen brothers and i'm certainly not the first one to point this out is that despite being jewish and i presume raised jewish I'm, i imagine yeah. they're not practicing anymore but they are probably the most protestant christian midwestern directors right now there there's that thread i would say running through How pictures like true grit well you look at something like true grit is it has a sense of justice and retribution the language also kind of the well, or Fargo, for instance, you have you have that kind of same mentality of there are bad people who do bad things. You have to respond to that. There are still good people who respond to that, but they don't lose themselves in the process. I, I don't know if I I mean, with with True Grit. Sure. Fargo, I'm not sure I, I agree with you there. And I there there's something to the chaos and the unknown that feels very, uh, very Hebrew, very Jewish about their a lot of their. Or kind of well, what, okay, on. well, say we could say Hebrew, or we could say Old Testament. You know yeah, what I mean, Hebrew yeah. Bible or Old Testament. And so, where it, where does it come from? Does it come from their their being raised as Jews, or does it come from being in the Midwest in a Protestant environment? I I would say it's. I mean, you. I I'm going to just make a recommendation to you right now. You really need to see a serious man. Well, and great the, great work. Um, and it's and it's one of those that after after seeing it the first time, my biggest like regret was like that I didn't understand culturally, like everything that they're uh, saturating in, in, in the film. Like I, I imagine if I was raised Jewish or raised in a Jewish community, like I would have gotten even more out of it. Um, But the, the whole, because it, it always seems like, or for the most part, at least it, it seems like there is a, there's a chaos. And I would say 
a Protestant outlook is a little different. Like there's there's a little more order than there is in most Coen Brothers films, and and that's a that's you know somewhat a product of the uh, the 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 Hebrewness of like well the Savior hasn't come yet. There's a I you know and maybe we don't need to get we don't need to get super religious in this, but there's a it's it's more a dialogue of possibilities, not a like even keel everything works out in the end like it it's more it's hard to say what's you know what's, well did did it seem more fundamentally cohen than fargo for instance or does it seem like it and fargo a serious man and fargo are from the same filmmakers i i would say they both feel like they're they're certainly from the same filmmakers you can you can find plenty of you know sort of follow through between them i mean the the thing with fargo is aside from marge gunderson um there's not a character to to really like and even even her i mean she is a she's a real solid uh sort of detective in this world of of characters who otherwise may not even know what their real drive is you know they're they're driven by something but they're not even aware of it and i mean maybe uh, marge gunderson and i forget uh steve buscemi's character's name but they're maybe the two only they're they're almost in this bizarre backwards world of chaos and they're the only people with their heads on straight who you know it's it's almost even a terrifying like uh their experience within a world where no one else understands you know that's an interesting because i never really thought of them as a yin and yang but i guess that you could make the argument that marge gunderson is a force forwarder and he's a force for chaos Mm -hmm. however i will like to point out folks because you couldn't see this because we're an audio show that whenever chris had a couldn't remember steve was showing for a second he pointed to his teeth and kind of made a face and said (laughs) what's his name and then the the, the funny looking one yeah the funny looking guy he's a he's a kind of a funny looking fella yeah but no i i mean if if you're going to throw out like that, that influence, I, I think there's throughout a lot of um, a lot of their Jewish upbringing to be found in the the stories that they choose to tell and um, the, the way in which they sort of uh, see balance in good and evil and, and those sorts of things. Well, and so I, I just I guess I just kind of latched on the Protestant element. But when you think about it, if there's Jewish films, there's Protestant films, there's a bit of Catholicism in something like Hail Caesar. Mm-hmm. What you have is then American. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, again, we go back to where we started, which is fundamentally American. Um, so what do you think of my contention that they're somewhat impervious to criticism, at least as far as Internet critics go? <laughs> as far I mean, Internet critics, I don't even want to I don't even want to get involved in. Well, well OK, that. fair enough. But do you think that if, if someone even if you may, and you know, even if you like Wes Anderson more, or Scorsese more or whatever, it kind of feels like if someone goes after the Coen brothers, that their credibility is just gone. I, I think that's a little strong, but I do I do think that if a if a critic doesn't like any Coen Brothers movies, like I I would myself completely like re uh reanalyze like everything that they they say from there because it's just there's and, and I would say the Coen brothers for the most part have many more uh you know amazing pictures than than slumpy ones. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Other than like Intolerable Cruelty and Lady Killers, which Lady Killers is a movie that they wrote, they were hired to write, and the director fell out, and so they just ended up making it. So it's almost not a, totally a Coen Brothers movie in and of itself, is made for someone else, not made for themselves. And at least still spe- spearheaded by a strong Tom Hanks performance, who actually, he was my other pick for 
uh, mm. Freddie Manix or Eddie Manix, excuse me. Yeah, he, he would have been. I'd go for that. Um, uh, so, but you mentioned a critic who never really liked them, and so that would shoot their destroy the credibility but ironically and i mentioned him earlier is except for fargo and no country which he gave great reviews for by and large roger ebert's reviews for the cones were somewhat middling and yeah, for the reason which, i mentioned earlier is he thinks that he always thought that they just looked down on their characters which is surprising well and and that's honestly a a thing that i mean that goes back to our discussion a while back about blue velvet like there are things about roger ebert's like perspective or the the way that he uh, the in- information that he infers from films that I just fundamentally disagree with. Um, I think he, you know, was a great critic, but there, there are things that I think gets wrong. I mean, if, uh, I don't know if I shared this with you or not, but I was looking through, um, reviews, I think on Metacritic, uh, of Raising Arizona, which is pretty, has pretty low. Like, I think it's maybe at 60 something on, on Metacritic. It's sort of, People are divided. And, you know, it, it's a movie that it was only their second film. They weren't the Coen brothers yet. Right. And uh, Pauline Kael gave a much higher review of that film than e- Ebert did. She didn't she wasn't over the moon for it, but she really enjoyed it, thought it was great. Whereas he thought that it was just sort of um, I guess, like you said, like he didn't care. They didn't care about the characters. They were more concerned with constructing these these moments, these scenes, and that, that was really their focus. It was, they were very proficient filmmakers, but, uh, not very good with, uh, story and character. Well, and to that point, we mentioned this earlier. And again, this was Roger Ebert's criticism. Let's talk about God, the Mm -hmm. filmmaker as God, the Coen brothers. I can see where he comes from. I don't think it makes them middling or bad filmmakers, which I think he may have believed, but I can Agree. I, I do agree with in many ways with his criticism that I don't think they like their characters very much. But I will I will postulate this, I, Chris. Well, I, I'm I sorry. disagree. Well, I mean, go go ahead. Well, I will postulate this, Chris, and and a lot of this is based on interviews and just kind of their general demeanor. They're called the two headed director, but I think that Joel is the more cynical, nihilistic one, and then Ethan is probably the more happy one, and then whenever they blend together that it winds up balancing out. If it were just a Joel Cohen film, it would be much darker and much more unpleasant and much more hateful towards people. It's almost like I think Joel doesn't like people and Ethan does. Uh, did, did you see A Tale of Two Kitties written by Joel Cohen? Is this the Garfield movie? Yeah, it was written by a different Joel Cohen. But that's the story is that Bill Murray saw the script, saw that it was written by a guy named Joel Cohen and said, I'll do it without reading it. Anyway, um, I I don't really see them as separate personalities. And maybe that's partially because they don't do many interviews. They don't. Um, you know, they don't do commentary. They, it's, it's difficult for me to get an understanding of like exactly who they are as individuals outside of their work. And, um, for, you know, from everything that I've read and seen, it seems like they sort of work in tandem a lot. Like they're, they're not, uh, they don't seem to be a, well, this one has his strengths here and this one has his strengths here. Like they say that Joel Cohen directs everything, but, uh, from you know everything you you hear from actors on set is that you know it's really the both of them working together well and i think by the time they get to the set and even by the time they get to the scripting phase it's almost like they really are 
one half of the same brain. It's just the Joel side of the brain is like a Lennon-McCartney thing. The Joel side of the brain is a little bit darker, and the Ethan side is but a little where, bit lighter, and it balances wh- out. Wh- what are you pulling that from? Like, where do you where do just, you decide who's who? It's one of those things from interviews, and also just frankly from looking at them and listening to them. Just kind of, you know what I mean? <laughs> because, you just kind of is this you, all because Joel Cohen kind of looks like a doppelganger for Tim Burton? 80s Joel, Tim well, Burton? I mean, actually, I never I never <laughs> thought of that, but you're right. I mean, Joel Cohen does look like a person who can't be bothered with people, doesn't care for people, whereas Ethan seems a little bit more uh, genial, you know? He seems like he likes people. I think you're bringing something to Joel Cohen that I brought to Leonardo DiCaprio in our Revenant review. <laughs> what I would like, what I actually, here's what I'd like to see is I, and I don't think this would ever happen. I'd like to see a Joel Cohen film and then an Ethan Cohen film, like wherever they have nothing mm-hmm. to do with each other. Maybe like, that can be an experiment. Like the, they make. the speaker box love below of the Cohen brothers. Yes. Okay. I, I have one thing that I, I want to share with you and maybe uh, you might disagree with me on this, but uh, in thinking about, you know, their work as a whole, I got to thinking about how um, each time I watch a Coen Brothers movie, it kind of continues to evolve for me. And that's that's something that doesn't happen with a whole lot of films or a whole lot of filmmakers. Um, but pretty much every time I watch a Coen Brothers movie, I I gain new information or I, I have a different perspective on on it. And maybe that's because they're open-ended um, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, something like Barden Fink or um, some of the others that we've, we've mentioned, but, uh, what do you think of this idea that to me, the Coen brothers films are kind of like, uh, my favorite albums in that the ones that I like the, the most, the ones that I respond to the best over time are the ones that I don't get absolutely everything out of the first time. I would definitely agree with that with most of their work. Now, so again, this isn't, this isn't a Coen brothers movie per se, but like true grit, I like that from the beginning. Yeah, Whereas like yeah. Fargo or Big Lebowski, you, you you can appreciate it, but you have to see it again. Mm-hmm. And and True Grit, it's still one that like going back and rewatching it, I think I've seen it maybe three times. Um, each time I'm still pulling more like it felt the, the the initial watch was sort of a like, oh, I like that. That was a that was a fun little Western. You don't you don't get movies like that anymore. And then it was only like subsequent viewing when I was really like honing in on. But there's still some Coen brothers here. There's still like. Even even as they're being faithful to um, to a work, they're you know getting their um, their style in, um, and so yeah, it's it's not necessarily has to be driven by that, but um, I find that kind of interesting in just because their movies are some that more often than not um, I will I will know that I liked I will know that I really enjoyed one of their movies you know leaving it the first time, but may not be able to fully connect all the pieces together well and i don't even and not even necessarily connect all the pieces because that that that's part of it you discover things that weren't that, that you didn't see the first time but sometimes you just simply enjoy them more mm-hmm. i mean and there's not even any intellectualizing yeah. it you just like it more the second time around yeah second third so chris as with our last uh, couple of special feature segments let's talk about what we'd like to see the cohen's do next i will throw this out there whenever hail caesar wasn't announced it was just kind of rumored what was going on it i think the 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 scuttlebutt was that they were doing a roman sword and sandals epic uh-huh. so what would you think of them doing a it, it might be a little too close to hail caesar but what would you think of them doing a roman sword and sandals <laughs> epic i would i would watch it for sure i mean that's that's the thing that i love about when they get into these sort of i mean because if you want to break it down like big lebowski is sort of a noir like a stoner noir right um you've you've got something like fargo which is a true crime story um that doesn't have a real true crime Mm -hmm. um 
they, you know, a lot of times they are playing in a genre, but their approach to it is completely different than what you expect from that genre. They, they kind of extract, um, an essence out of it and then put it into their own universe. But, and I agree with that wholeheartedly, but at the same time, it's still true to that genre. The genre still fits. It's not like they're trying to undermine it or anything like that. They're getting more of that genre than you, even you realized, even though I I was, I I, kind of want to see a sword and sandals epic from them just to see if they can pull it off. But here's the thing about it that would make me skeptical and why I was skeptical in the first place is a Roman sword and sandals epic is not American. Mm -hmm. It's uh, and so when we, you look at their entire, filmography it's all fundamentally american i'm not sure that they could do a picture that's for all intent for lack of better words not american or a genre picture that's not an american genre that's an interesting uh i i, I don't know i i would still like to see it. i think they could pull it off but you might well or, or i was just thinking of this just now like a solaris style sci-fi i'd be curious to see it from but mm. i'm not sure that they could mm. do it because again it's not it doesn't have that American element. To I don't. It. I don't think. I mean, you could you could make the argument that it does because you could you could make the argument. Well, I don't know. I was going to say someone like Terrence Malick is probably the closest to anyone who's made anything even remotely close to something like Solaris. Even I would say uh, Steven Soderbergh's Solaris doesn't. It's not working on the level that Tarkovsky's is in the same way that like something like Tree of Life is a very close. You know, there's there's a lot of that there and. Coen brothers have a lot of those elements, but I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I would want to see their, their take on something like that. I think they're better in, you know, dialogue is the real strong suit. And then, you know, their, their dialogue, their themes, um, that sort of thing. And so I know they've done it before with something like Hudsucker proxy, but I would love to see them do another straight screwball comedy again. Chris, I, no, I absolutely would too. Cause they're very good at that. But Chris, I'm getting ready to bring this episode full circle. Are you ready? I'm ready. Since they have consistently been involved in American genres, I was just trying to think of what American genre, fundamentally American genre, have they not been involved in? And this occurred to me. I would like to see them do a 1930s serial style superhero movie. <laughs> like like a 1930s style Superman story, wherever you have this extremely overpowered superhero and everyone's just amazed and and you got kind of like the His Girl Friday thing going on at uh-huh. the. It may be it may be a little bit too much of a rip off of Superman, but something like that from the Coen Brothers, I think, would be fascinating. Them exploring the superhero would, genre. Would this be sort of a metatextual? Would this be like the actual superhero, or would this be another? Would we revisit Capital Pictures again for a third time and uh, see sort of the making of it and the drama that plays out? You know. Either or, not. I wouldn't want to see a sequel to Hail Caesar necessarily, but I think. Well, no, but Capitol Pictures is also in mm-hmm. Barton Fink. Okay, yeah, um, it's, exactly. It's the same so, studio, yeah. so if if they were going to revisit that way, that would be you the know natural. that 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 could be interesting. Maybe you play off a very mortal character trying to play a you know a, an impervious superhero, but I would actually know. I'd like to see them make a straight superhero picture, but it's set <laughs> in the 1930s or 40s because hmm. that's an American genre that they have not explored yet. Yeah, I would, I would totally watch that. I don't know what. what what they would do with it. I, I would watch it. I'll say that. <laughs> I'll give say, you that. All right. Um, I, you asked me this earlier. I think I already know the answer, but what picture do you put in their time capsule? Um, if I'm putting it in the time capsule, actually Fargo is yeah. my answer. Um, I, it's, it's a, it's a movie that's just, uh, so much denser than you realize on first or second or third or eighth viewing. Like it's every time I watch that movie, I'm, I'm, constantly extracting more out of it and it is a um i don't know it's 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 
it's sort of a quiet movie in a way. It's a, and it, I also have, you know, a fondness because it's the first time they worked with Roger Deakins and the beginning of that, that partnership. Uh, I, yeah, I think it's gotta be Fargo. Um, yeah. if, if I'm going to go favorite though, I, it's probably a tie between no country for old men and raising Arizona. Yeah, I would say that, yeah, you, I would divide it in between best and favorite as I did earlier. But yeah, Fargo is a genuine American masterpiece. It, it transcends them. It's very yeah. much a Coen Brothers movie, but it transcends them. Mm-hmm. However, that's Chris, in my opinion. You, dear listener, may agree. You have a time capsule, and you can only fit in a DVD of one Coen Brothers movie. What is it and why? Please let us know at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Stick around for our really rad recommendations. Coming up next. All right, Hunter, it's everyone's favorite time again. It's recommendation time. And, you know, this episode has been dedicated to the Coen brothers, but I imagine you're going to probably go for something that is sourced from the time in which Hail Caesar is set, and that's classic Hollywood. So what do you have to recommend today? Well, actually, I'm going to double it up. Uh, My old Hollywood pick that exposes the seedy side of Hollywood is In a Lonely Place. It's from the early 1950s, I believe, and it's directed by Nicholas Ray. One I actually have seen. Yeah, and he uh, he also, I believe it was Rebel Without a Cause that he did. Mm-hmm. And Nicholas Ray uh, directs Humphrey Bogart in this as a kind of vengeful, nasty, mean, potentially homicidal screenwriter. So this, you might just call this film instead of In a Lonely Place, Revenge of the Rider. So, <laughs> and he's, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he's working on some sort of sword and sandals like based on a giant tome novel. Yeah, so, right? the, so yeah, so exactly. This this film is being satirical. It, you know, of its own time, not just yeah. of a pastime. So that's recommendation one. Recommendation two is my favorite movie about a movie is Day for Night, Francois Truffaut's oh, uh, film about a making mm-hmm. of of uh, a, roman- a romantic f- picture. I haven't seen it in a number of years, but I remember it being just extremely charming. And Jacqueline Bisset is capital 10, capital, capital, capital <laughs> T10, capital T10. Capital T10. Uh, well, you, this is one of the rare times when I have seen not only one, but both of your, your recommendations. Uh, no, absolutely. There, there was very recently a beautiful criterion restoration of day for night that came out. Um, if you can find that, watch it like, because previously it was a sort of, sort of awful, I think MGM, DVD release that was real grainy and gross. And, uh, it's, it's a fun, fun movie. Yeah. And you know, they're, they're two very different views on (laughs) filmmaking. Well, like I said, one is very happy and optimistic and then one is very dark and, uh, and you know, cynical. However, one picture I'm going to do the opposite of what we normally do and say a picture you shouldn't see an unrecommendation you might see. (sighs) Don't see swimming for sharks. It's What, what is that? It's the Kevin Spacey where he's the producer and Frank Whaley's the the young up and comer who this wants to be. This sounds boring. Exactly. Well, it it you know it Kevin Spacey is always good, so maybe just see it for that. But yeah, it's it's a movie about making movies and it's just way over the top. So okay. yeah, 
my unrecommendation is swimming with sharks. Don't bother with that. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm really happy that you went with three recommendations or I guess two recommendations and an recommendation because I was feeling kind of bad about my number of recommendations. That you have I, had. Like I, couldn't, I couldn't whittle it down. No, I, I have three. Uh, the first is blood simple, which if you haven't seen, you should see blood simple. But, um, once you're done watching blood simple, you need to go back and turn on the commentary and watch it with the commentary. Um, I don't know. Are you familiar with the, uh, if, if you're familiar with anything, probably at the beginning of the big Lebowski DVD, there's the fake intro by, uh, Mortimer young from forever young pictures. He's talking about, I don't about think the, I've seen that. Oh, it's, it's good. They're both, there's two of them. There's one for that and one for blood simple. They're both on YouTube. Um, I'll put those in the show notes. Uh, they're, they're pretty fun. You know, it's, it's sort of a, um, it feels like the Coen's maybe poking fun at something like criterion collection. But uh, there's this commentary by a fake, I think maybe art director, set director um, from Forever Young Pictures, this this fictional uh, production or this fictional movie studio. Um, and he does commentary throughout all of Blood Simple, which Blood Simple, if you haven't seen, is a pretty dark sort of. That's their uh, first, correct? It's their very first. Yeah. Pretty dark sort of noir film. And he's providing. Have you ever seen uh, Look Around You, the Edgar Wright uh, BBC show that's mm-hmm. like a it's a fake like public access 80s uh, education show. Uh, very dry, very uh, absurd. The film starts on this, you know, long driving shot in the rain. And so the commentary starts out with this actually wasn't shot uh, out on the road. It was shot in a studio. And you're like, oh, OK. And they shot it in reverse. Of course, what this necessitates flipping the film around uh, head to tail scene must uh, be shot upside down so that when the motion is reversed the the up and down will not also look reversed and so the scene was actually shot with the car upside down the actors securely strapped in so they wouldn't be falling up into the roof the the hair of course must have um, styling mousse rather liberally swabbed on especially the girls so that it won't hang wrong so it's hair moussed and clothes heavily starched so you don't get the telltale sags and so forth and now uh, here's a cut a series of cuts and now I believe the car is right side up again. It's it's a lot of fun. Uh, my next recommendation is a comic book series called The Fade Out. This is a 1940s old Hollywood noir um, based, you know, around a screenwriter and a studio and and all of this. So it it has a lot in common with uh, Hail Caesar. Much darker, much much darker tone. Um, but a whole lot of fun to read. I I'm really anticipating the, I've read the first two acts. Third act is coming out this week, really anticipating reading that. And then as sort of a sandwich with that, uh, have you ever heard the, the podcast? You must, must remember this. Yes. Um, so there's, there's two recommendations I would make there. One is called star Wars. So wait a minute, you're moving up to four now. You're four recommendations. No, this is my third. Okay. What, what? Th- well, 3.1 and 3.2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so there, there's one series that she did, I think, last year called Star Wars, which is about different Hollywood stars and their involvement in World War II. Um, so it kind of ties in a little bit with, uh, with, with the, the comic book. And then um, what she's on right now is The Blacklist. And I think it's a maybe 16-part series. There's, at this point, two or three episodes out. Um, really great stuff. Like, I mean, you must remember this. If you're not listening to this podcast, you really should be if you love film history. Um, it's a sort of about forgotten or more esoteric history of, of Hollywood. Um, really great stuff, but ties kind of directly into some themes in Hail Caesar and then maybe even more into uh, into the fade out. Yeah, you must remember this is a, a really good show. I've actually only managed to listen to one, but that one was just 
that alone was yeah. enough to get me hooked. It was the Spencer Tracy one. Okay. And yeah. you know what? Spencer Tracy, much better Eddie Mannix. <laughs> if only he weren't dead. If only if it only weren't for that. But he would have been a great Eddie Mannix. <laughs> I'll give you that one too. Well, that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes, weekly movie recommendations, and more. You can say hi to Hunter on Facebook or me on Twitter at WSAMPod. And if you've made it this far into the credits, let's face it, you should probably subscribe in iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you rate us or leave us a nice little review? It'll help us reach new listeners, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the flip side, if you're just the trolling type who's been hate-listening through these credits, well, tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if you're a narcissist, you can leave us a voicemail and see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. Shout out to the Whirlybirds for music on this week's show. Find more at thewhirlybirds.com. We'll see you in another fortnight as we're joined by Adam Chitwood of Collider.com to discuss The Witch. Thanks for listening, folks. Later, Gators. Later, Gators.